after the service is over to, to Jeff and Katie. Today is uh, Palm Sunday. This is the week we celebrate the passion of our Lord. And so I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 27, verse 32 through 54. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it again in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people there. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Today I want to take a look at Matthew's account of the crucifixion. If you combine all the gospels, they record seven things Jesus said from the cross. We don't know in what order those things were said, although it's easy to surmise the last two things he said when he said, it is finished and father into your hands I commit my spirit. No gospel contains more than three quotes from Jesus on the cross. Matthew contains only one. What we do know is that it took extraordinary effort for a human being being crucified to say anything loud enough to be heard by the crowd around the cross. The very act of speaking required what little energy a person had left due to exhaustion, shock, fluid buildup around the heart and lungs, and in the end, asphyxiation. Most of the time, people died on a cross from dehydration, but especially the inability to breathe. In order to catch enough breath to speak boldly or loudly, the person would have to pull themselves up by the nails in their wrists in order to expand their diaphragm to speak, to get enough air. For these reasons and more, people didn't speak much when they were dying on a cross. People were not chatty during crucifixion. But Jesus wanted us to hear the realities he was experiencing during the crucifixion. 
He wanted us to hear the dialogue between he and his father, the words to and for his mother, his response to the crowd mocking him, the pain, our pain he was enduring. And in the end, he wanted us to hear the trust he clung to and the victory he won. Luke tells us Jesus on the cross looked at the crowd, the ones torturing him, spitting at him, mocking him. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. We as a species have a problem. A lot of the time we don't know what we're doing. Forgive us. Forgive us from what? I'm sure the people in that crowd that day said, what, what for? We're good people. I'm going to use an old-fashioned word here that has gone out of style. We need forgiveness for something called sin. If you'd like to look it up, it's spelled S-I-N, sin. We don't sin anymore. Have you noticed? We make bad choices or errors in judgment or mistakes or we have psychological issues or we screw up, but we don't sin anymore. One of the things I've discovered in myself and in 40 years of ministry is the limitless capacity of human beings for denial. When it comes to sin, we rationalize it, lie to ourselves about it, blame others for it, minimize it, relabel it. We seem these days to do everything but sin, but God will have none of it. He takes our sin seriously even if we don't. That's why Jesus was hanging on a cross saying, Father, forgive them. Why? Because we need forgiveness and nothing less than forgiveness. We need it desperately more than we know or feel or realize. But of course, those who talk about sin like this are accused often of being morbid people, judgmental people, within and without the church. Instead of talking about sin, let's talk about human potential. Let's talk about self-actualization. Let's talk about positive reinforcement. Let's talk about grace, but without all that guilt-tripping stuff about sin. But grace is meaningless if we don't understand what we need grace for. Jesus hanging on a cross is absurd if he died for nothing. Before we can be saved, we need to embrace what we're being saved from. Before grace is grasped, we need to know why we need it so desperately. Before we survey the wondrous cross, we, not, we need to know our part, our sin, that put Jesus up there on the wondrous cross. It was our sin, our lostness, our capacity for evil. Sin is deadly. It kills. It is so true. The wages of sin is death. Death to relationships, death to our physical and emotional health, death to love, death to nature, death to our souls. We all have the same disease that they had 2,000 years ago, and it's killing us just as surely as it killed them. Oh, but we're not that bad, some of you are thinking. We're, we've advanced. We're basically good. We're not like those people around the cross 2,000 years ago. It's easy to think that 2,000 years ago, the crowd was made up of people unlike us. They were murderers and drunks and lowlifes. I hate to burst your bubble, but they were not. They were the opposite. Those who crucified Jesus were the most pious people on the face of the planet. Religious leaders who studied the Torah voraciously, educators who mentored young people called rabbis, church folk who went to the synagogue regularly. 
And don't forget, it was the feast of the Passover. There were thousands of the most pious Jews there when Jesus died. Jews on pilgrimage. It was good people, a lot like good people now who crucified Jesus Christ. The great irony that day at Golgotha was that it was not really Jesus who was on trial, but us. The cross showed what we're capable of, how warped sin can make us, what's wrong with our hearts. The cross shows how captive we are to the mob, to public opinion, how easily we are entrapped by the culture and its values. The scene at the cross holds up the mirror to us, not him. Whether we believe he was the Messiah or not, why would we crucify a man like that? It is at the cross we see our dark side, the shadow cast by our souls, what sin is really capable of. Some years ago, there was a man named Yehiel Dinur. He was at the Nuremberg Trials. He was a concentration camp survivor who testified against Eichmann in those trials. A clip from the Eichmann's 1961 trial showed Dinur walking into the courtroom, stopping short, seeing Eichmann for the first time since the Nazi had sent him to Auschwitz 18 years earlier. And when Dinur saw Eichmann, and by the way, Eichmann was the per- Hitler wanted to kill the Jews. Eichmann was the one who showed him how to kill the Jews. He was the one that set up the structure. And it said, when Dinur saw him, he began to sob uncontrollably, then fainted, collapsing in a heap on the floor as the presiding judicial officer pounded his gravel in, or- for, in order for order in the crowded courtroom. Was Dinur overcome by hatred or fear or some flashback? No, it was none of these. Rather, as Dinur explained to, to, to the people around him that day, all at once he realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. What he discovered and what made him horrified, horrified enough to faint, was that Eichmann was an ordinary man. I was afraid about myself, said Dinur. I saw that what humans are capable of, what I'm capable of. I was like Eichmann. That is the story of sin. What Dinor saw at Nuremberg was that the line between good and evil is not primarily across national borders or, or political philosophies. The line between good and evil runs right through the middle of every human heart. We are infected with the same thing that a man who killed six million Jews organized. It's in all of us. And without God's help, we are hopelessly lost. That's why Christ died. While on the cross, humans gambled for his clothes, religious leaders mocked and spat on him, a mother cried, disciples ran, but the most poignant words uttered that day came from Jesus himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No one can quite know what happened on that cross to Jesus. But Scripture tells us that Jesus, for the first time in his existence, felt separate from his Father. God incarnate felt God forsaken. Why, why, and how? 
Because while on that cross, Jesus not only sacrificed himself for the sins of the world, he became one with our sin. He absorbed into himself the evil of humanity. All lostness, all brokenness, all darkness, all evil was absorbed by his great heart that day. And it broke his heart that day. Today, there's a great debate going on among Christians about the necessity or even the morality of God when it comes to the crucifixion. It is well summed up by a nominal Christian who talked to Methodist pastor and writer Adam Hamilton. And he said this. He said, I guess I'm not smart enough or spiritual enough to understand Jesus' death on a cross. When my kids mess up, I sometimes get angry, but mostly I just feel disappointed. But Christianity seems to teach that God not only gets angry, but that he has to punish sin in order to forgive. That doesn't make any sense to me. Aren't we supposed to forgive others without seeking retribution? Why then does God require punishment to forgive? Christians teach that God is so loving that he sends Jesus, but then God tortures the heck out of him to work out his anger against human sin. That sounds like child abuse. Does God really need Jesus to be tortured to death to forgive sins? That just seems messed up to me. Maybe you resonate with that. Let me say this plainly. God did not torture his son that day on Golgotha. We did. The father didn't beat Jesus with a whip until his back was a bloody pulp. Humans did. The father did not create a farce of a trial. The Pharisees did. The father didn't nail his son to a cross. The Romans did. The father did not mock his son. The onlookers did. God did not need to torture or kill his son in order to save us. We did that just fine without his help. We killed Jesus. All of us. Our sin. Our rejection of God and his son. Our lostness. So why did Jesus die from heaven's perspective? What was the source of the torment? Perhaps this illustration from Max Lucado might give some insight into the crucifixion of Jesus. He said that on August 16, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 255 crashed after taking off from the Detroit airport, killing 155 people. The lone survivor was four-year-old Cecilia from Tempe, Arizona. Researchers found her in such good condition that they wondered if she'd actually been on the flight. Perhaps she was riding in one of the cars into which the airplane crashed. But no, her name was on the manifest. She was on that flight where 155 people died. While the exact nature of events may never be known, Cecilia's survival may have been due to her mother's quick response. Initial reports from the scene indicate that as the plane was falling, her mother, Paula, unbuckled her own seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of her daughter, and wrapped her arms and body around her daughter and shielded her to some degree from the force of the crash. And her daughter survived. 2,000 years ago, on a cross, Jesus wrapped himself around us. He took the brunt of the trauma of humanity's fall. Just as the little girl's mother accepted the trauma of the plane's crash, so in a similar manner, Jesus absorbed the trauma of our sin, our death, our pain. 
The pain of the cross, the torment of the cross, was not the Father torturing His Son, but the Son taking on, becoming one with us in our lostness, our brokenness, our evil. Just as the mother absorbed what would have been inflicted on her daughter by using her body as a shield, so Jesus absorbed forever what would have been inflicted on us by taking into His body the consequences of our sin. And guess what? It killed him too. The cross of Jesus was the ultimate act of what began at Christmas. Remember, incarnation, God with us, God us. Well, God became one of us and one with us. But until the crucifixion, there was one place in his oneness with us he had not gone. He had never sinned. He had never known what it was like to hold sin in his heart. Jesus not only died for our sin, Paul says he became our sin, one with our sin, and experienced fully what it does to us. What kills us killed Jesus. What hurts us hurt Jesus. What warps us broke his heart. The father did not kill his son that day. Sin killed his son that day. Jesus on that cross became fallen humanity so that we could stop falling. What I've described, by the way, is why Jesus, I believe, felt God forsaken. Sin, by its very nature, blinds us to the presence of God. It numbs us to God's presence. It desensitizes us to our own souls and spiritual realities. So when Christ became one with us in our sin, it blinded him too. He could no longer feel the father who was right there, I believe, suffering with his son. Why else do you think the sky turned black in the middle of the day and the earth shook and the rocks split and the earth opened up? That was the father's reaction to his son on a cross. The father made creation cry with him too. The father's heart was broken that day. Adding to his son's torture was the last thing in God's heart and mind. Because of the cross, Paul talks about the great exchange that happened. Jesus took our sin so we could take on his righteousness. He became our badness so we could be clothed in his goodness. That's what it says in Galatians 3.27. For all of you who are baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ. I'm wearing Jesus this morning. I think it looks good on me. Don't you think? It looks good on you too. When God looks at me, he no longer sees my sin. He sees his son. The work has been done. The debt has been paid in full. We cannot add to this work done on our behalf. Our sins, our mistakes cannot undo it. Hallelujah. We don't have to be perfect to walk with God and be treated like Jesus. Hallelujah. No more performing for God, trying to earn favor or merit. We contribute nothing to our salvation. He did it all. He paid it all. It is all gift, freely given. God's love, his undying grace is yours because all of our sins were nailed to him on a cross 2,000 years ago. And we can walk in utter freedom without fear, without anxiety. I am his and he is mine. I am accepted in the beloved. Hallelujah. Completely and totally. But he has done more than graced us and forgiven us. The Christ who poured out his life 2,000 years ago on a cross is pouring out his life now. 
All who call on his name and be, can become funnels of Christ's life into this world. That means we are inhabited by Christ. It means his life becomes ours. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Paul said. That means that when I can't love someone, I can surrender to someone in me who can love the person I can't. That means that when I can't break the power of certain sins, I can just surrender to Christ living in me who is able. That means when I can't forgive an, en that can't forgive an enemy, can't face the future, can't forgive the past, your past, Christ can, and he is in you available. Hallelujah. With Christ's life in us, forgiven people can become forgiving people. Hatred can turn into love. Rather than to, than to tell you to try harder, Christ tells you to join with him and let him do the heavy lifting. More Christians fail because they forget Christ's life is in them and he's meant to do the heavy lifting. Remember, it's, it's still one of my favorite stories. The story of Corey Ten Boom. While speaking at a church in Munich after World War II, she was approached by one of the most cruel guards she had encountered during her imprisonment at Ravensbrück. This was one of the men who tortured her and helped kill her sister Betsy. And she tells about the meeting with him in Tramp for the Lord. She was out speaking one night. And he was in the audience. And he came up to her and said, you mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he said. I was a guard there. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, will you forgive me? For years of torture, <laughs> for killing us, will you forgive? She said it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have sinned and injured us. And she said, I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. Jesus, help me, she prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. But you have to do the rest you supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, she said, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth flooded my whole being, bring tears to my eyes. And she said, with all of my heart, she said, I looked at this man who had done so much and said, I forgive you, brother, brother. And she said, I cried it with all of my heart. Corey Ten Boom experienced nothing less than the life of Christ flowing through her. With him living in us, we can reproduce and pass on into the world his life, his love, his grace, his light, his forgiveness. That it, and when Jesus died, when Jesus, he, he just made new ways, a new way to God. Curtain at the temple split from top to bottom. But he also made a new way to each other. He unleashed forgiveness into the hearts of his followers and into this world. He launched a new world that day, a new kingdom coming, invading this one. This is why Jesus died, and this is what Jesus died for. And one more thing. 
I need to tell you that Jesus hanging on a cross was a Trinity decision. Jesus wasn't just a victim. The father didn't say, I got an idea. You go and die. And Jesus said, okay, if you say so. Christ helped plan this mission. This was his mission to save the world, not just the father's. It was fully his choice. He was not a victim led to the slaughter against his will. There's the story of a wounded Marine who was wounded in his leg and it had to be amputated. And while recovering, a Marine doctor visited the young man and said, I'm sorry I had to take your leg. To which the young Marine said, beg your pardon, sir, but you did not take my leg. I gave it. Jesus said, no one takes my life. No one takes my life. Jesus' life was not wrenched from him. It was given freely. Those are his words. It was his choice. And it was done out of the heart of pure love. And that is why we are here today. We were born in love. Christ birthed us, birthed his people, birthed this church that day when he said, Father, forgive them. And he wrapped himself around our pain and suffering. And so we are here. And we celebrate it this morning with the communion. We're going to take communion up front today. But before we do that, I want us to take a little time for gratitude. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to thank Jesus for absorbing your sin, your stupidity, your evil, your mistakes, your lostness, your darkness. We owe a debt we cannot repay, but at least we can be grateful for it. Lord, thank you for the gift, the gift of yourself on a cross and even now for the gift freely given. May we receive as freely as you are giving this morning. Fill us with yourself. Fill us with your spirit. Pour your life into us. You poured it out on a cross. Pour it into our hearts this morning. Your love into our hearts this morning. Your forgiveness into our hearts this morning again. In Jesus' name. Amen. Obeying the command of our Lord Jesus and confident of his presence with us. I was, uh, I was about to read you how to be baptized. <laughs> Let me try this again. <laughs> We now invite you to come to this table <laughs> as opposed to the pool. Not because you must, but because you may. 
come to testify not that you are perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before you, lift up your minds and hearts above all fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit. Let us do, uh, before we do our responsive reading, again, communion is up front. We asked you to exit the right side of the section you are in and come around and come back in on the other side. Uh, please don't rush. These are, these are wonderful moments. There's, we're not in a race here. If you are allergic to gluten or gluten products in the little plastic bags up here, you, may be able, you can grab one out of, the, out of the plate and partake that way. Let us do the responsive reading. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. We follow his example. Brothers and sisters, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Take and eat this bread, remembering that he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he also took the cup, blessed it, and gave to his disciples. We will do likewise. Brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup, remembering that he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. If the, uh, we're going to start the communion now. If the, if the servers will go to their stations, we will begin to the communion. 